0: What you find is you when you read through the gospels, you find people have questions for Jesus. They would come up and some of them question him because they wanted to test him or to judge, uh kind of to put him in a box and to think, well, where does he fit in? Do I agree with him? Or and some added a, a genuine desire to learn. And I was thinking, if Jesus was here, what might I ask him? What would you ask him? Do you have some burning question that you would like to ask Jesus and it's interesting that people have burning questions for God who don't even believe that God exists. They they have these demands that they want to make of God. Well, if God was real, I'd ask Him. You know, I'd just basically shirt front God and and make Him answer me with you know answer my question. And it's good for us to have questions. It shows that we care. Many times God has already answered our questions, um, but. We're not always satisfied with the answer, but it's good for us to, to ask questions, to expectantly wait for his answer, to seek guidance from his word, and when, we, when we're shrouding our unbelief through a pious-sounding question, God sees through it, and he's willing to answer those genuine questions we have because we have them, the answer of faith God will answer. A question of faith, God would answer. Have you ever thought about, though, that God has burning questions to ask you? And then to think about whose questions and answers are more important, really. The the fact that God has questions to ask us, and today's text has no less than 15 of them. He has questions, and our life is what gives our answer. That's the tricky thing about the questions that Jesus Asked. Because not only did people come to him with questions, but he said, Well, before I answer that, let me ask you. Or I'll answer your question if you'll answer me this. And his questions would go right to the heart of the person asking. And if they were scribes or Pharisees, many times they would not answer or say, I don't know, because it would make them look bad in front of everyone they wanted to impress. God's questions always go to the heart. They always put us on the spot. And if we don't want to answer it or feel like we really can't answer it, we can know that there's something in our heart that God wants to, he, he's exposing something. In our silence, we're giving him an answer. And to consider what what it is we, we try to cover up. God's questions, those burning questions, they're not rhetorical, they're not theoretical. They're intended to be answered with a clean conscience, and so we'll have that opportunity today. Will you answer them? Will you answer God's questions? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you want to answer our questions and that you often answer them with yourself. Knowledge and understanding pales in comparison to your presence. And what we really need most of all is you. But Lord, I pray that when we have those genuine questions and the questions we bring with us today, that they'd be answered in your word. Questions that we haven't even been able to to ask because we, we don't really know what to say. Lord, I pray you'd bring clarity through your spirit today. Lord, minister to each heart. Come, Lord, visit us today. Minister to each one that we might hear your voice and answer those questions you have for us. Thank you that we can come to you now. Humble us before you, Lord, and may we humble ourselves. Thank you that you are an awesome God who is mighty and worthy to be praised. Please be glorified in this place with the children. May they be introduced to Christ today, and may we choose to answer your questions and to follow you like never before. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in Isaiah 40 starting in verse 12. Who has measured the waters and the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel and who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge? And showed him the way of understanding. The prophet begins to ask questions of God's people so they might consider how awesome God is, the wise God who has made all things. He knows all things. And there's not a man today who could claim to have measured the water of the oceans or spanned the breadth of the universe, you know, break out a big ruler and stretch it out and measure the known universe. There's no one who has actually weighed the mountains, all the mountains and the hills on on some scales, or counted all the dust of the earth. People can estimate, but no one really knows. And if someone said, oh, it weighs this much, well, someone else could say, well, I don't agree, it's this much. And we, we really couldn't know. These are tasks too great for any man, let alone the... Um, measurements that are required. It says, "Who can measure all the waters in the hollow of their hand?" So just cup your hand and look at it. I don't even think I could—maybe a third of a cup, half of a cup. And yet he's saying God could do that. He can measure all the waters of the earth in the hollow of His hand. He spreads out His hand, and what's about nine inches between thumb and finger is, you know, 92 billion light my, light years or whatever it is. Estimated to be at the time, at this time. And I love that God doesn't have to count. He just knows. He simply knows. He has all knowledge. He doesn't need, he's not surprised by his findings. They're not findings. He knows it all together. He's created it. He's spirit. But in the Bible, we see sometimes human measurements given. This is called an anthropomorphism. Did you catch that? Anthropomorphism. Which is, because God is spirit, we don't always understand him, and so he'll, he'll almost reduce himself to using human characteristics and measurements, so you can get a picture of how awesome he is. How, how, if his hand is so great that he can just carry all the water and just measure it, like, oh yeah, it's this much. And it's that easy for him, it helps us to see, wow, I could, I could bail the water of the ocean my whole lifetime, a thousand times over, and never get to the bottom of it. He can weigh hills and mountains, all of them of the earth, like you would measure out some money or grain on the scales. He's saying, man, powerful, mighty. And he continues these questions. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel? and who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice, who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding. Talking of his credentials. Now, if you're going to apply for a job, your school, your degree, and the the level of the degree is important. If you're a job applicant, you might include notable people who have trained you along the way or projects that you've worked on that would give you credibility. Like if a philosopher, he sat under Plato. He would have some credibility. If an artist was trained by Pablo Picasso himself, that would raise his standard a bit. So the prophet's asking, "Where did God go to school? Where did he graduate? Who taught him? Who, saw, who was the dean who signed his decree? Who was the one who taught him in a school of law? No one. No one taught God. He doesn't need a counselor. He doesn't need advice. He is mighty and awesome. He's never been created. He's always been because he's eternal, immortal, all-powerful. He, he has all wisdom and understanding. All of his attributes are beyond human calculation. They are all infinite. And he's not some self-taught charlatan who fancies himself wise. He has this whole world as proof of his genius where you have complex ecosystems and Uh, He spoke the stars and the planets into existence and how he packed vast amounts of information into the DNA in a single cell. How he fashioned man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into him life. Think of this. The mountains, they can be weighed. The dust, it can be counted. There's an actual number. It's a finite amount. There's a finite amount of water that's on the earth. It could be counted. It would be an impossible task, of course. But God's wisdom and his justice, his goodness, cannot be counted. It's impossible to count. it. It's beyond number. It's beyond reckoning. And to think that sometimes we don't believe that God knows what's going on in our life or that he needs my counsel in what he should do when he's made all things. The prophet's really setting the people in their place and saying, take a seat and think about this God. Think about the God you claim to know and to love. Consider Him. Think about what He's done. How do we respond in light of that? If you rightly sense injustice, doesn't God feel it more profoundly than you? Since no one told God what to do when He created the world, does He now need our help because times have changed? but he's so above and beyond all things. Who is man to question him, to criticize, to counsel him? Verse 15, Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing. And they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. Say I brought in, uh, as an object lesson, a bucket. And into the bucket I had squeezed a single drop of water from an eyedropper, closed the bucket, came in excitedly, and said, check this out, and opened it and had you look at it. It would look like an empty bucket. You'd be saying, this guy is crazy what's the there's nothing in there right that drop of water in a bucket it's counted as nothing it's not enough to drink it may evaporate by the time anyone else sees it he's saying the nations to god are as a drop in a bucket it's like nothing before him my sons and i fast forwarded through the four plus hours of opening ceremonies of the olympics and I was reminded again of the broad spectrum of cultures and people from all over the world, and and each has their own history and a culture. Nations that I've never heard of, much less pronounced. I'm trying to read the discus thrower's shirt. And I'm like, what does that even say? I cu- I couldn't even say it. But that's a nation, and there's all these people from there, and they have they have a story and a background and. And it's very overwhelming for me to even think. I'm looking at one stadium that's packed with people, and it's an overwhelming amount of people, and history, and culture, and languages that that I don't understand. Beliefs, traditions, nations of thousands, nations of millions, nations of over a billion people were represented by flags and waving athletes. But before God, all the nations are as a drop in the bucket. Drop in the bucket. If we're to see God in truth, then we see the nations, their power, their wealth, their, their accomplishments, their military might, as nothing before God. It talks about the small dust on the scales. While people are walking through the marketplace, you would have those brass or some uh, some scales that were even, and there would be dust kicked up and would land on the scales, and, and it would just take a light brush of wind of just someone walking by to disturb that dust. And he's saying the nations are like that dust, the small dust on the scales, dust that's so small it's not going to affect the weight of whatever you try to weigh. You wouldn't be cheating anyone to leave the small dust on the scales and weigh out gold because it has no no weight. Compared to God, the nations are nothing. We talk about carrying the weight of the world, but God's not weighed down by anything. How about you? How about me? Are there things that weigh me down when the nations are as the light dust on the scales to God? Talks of Lebanon here. It was a highly wooded area. The the cedars of Lebanon, legendary wood. They had vast amount of cattle, But yet burning Lebanon with all its beasts would be an insufficient sacrifice to give God the glory he deserves. If you ever go to the Russian market in Phnom Penh, you'll see in many of the shops a little shrine. There'll be some incense and and maybe a lit candle and some food on a plate. A little plate, a few dumplings on the plate in front of this deity. A few dumplings is seen a sufficient offering for this idol made with men's hands. But all the cattle and the cedars of Lebanon are not sufficient for God. According to his worthiness. were worth, yeah, so worthy. All nations before him are as nothing. They are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. Now in context, remember, he's talking about comparing the power and the the value or the worth of God, comparing it to anything else. Because we know the scriptures tell us that God loves the world, that he loves individuals. Kings of this world, they have to plunder enemies to gather territory and to gain wealth and strength for themselves. But the glory and the wealth of nations in no way adds wealth or glory to the kingdom of God. It doesn't add to his power if a nation is thrown down. Like God's so above and beyond that, a nation or the nations cannot add to his glory. That's what it's saying. God's not enriched at the expense of others. He has all wealth already, all in himself. He's not dependent on technology, exchange rates, politics, natural resources, or workers, He's not in poverty in any sense. Nations cannot advance his kingdom. They are vain and worthless before him. Because God is over and above all. Glorious. Verse 18. And now he he continues to, to nail down a little further. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image. The goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Isaiah takes aim at those who were given over to idolatry. The law of Moses, it forbade the crafting of images, whether of God or of man or of animals that God had made. In Exodus 24, when the Ten Commandments were given, and in other passages, it says this, and the idea of reducing God, who's so great, who's so marvelous, before whom the nations are like the light dust on the scales, to to say that he's like something made by man's hands is utter blasphemy. And it's a bit humorous. He's saying... You know, you're trying to find a, a good tree that's not going to rot. Or you get a good worker who's going to keep your idol from... You don't want it to tip over. You don't want to put some gold on a, a potentially rotten tree and have it fall over. What kind of God is that, right? But God, remember, he's talking to his people. If you could turn to Deuteronomy 4, 15 through 19, we'll see that in all people there is this tendency to worship really a need that we have. And God warned his people against idolatry. I think it was John Calvin who described the hearts of men as perpetual idol factories. Deuteronomy 4, verse 15. says, Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. And take heed, lest you lift up your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. It would be a sorry trade to ignore the living God and to substitute an image or a likeness made by man's hands. The crafting of idols from gold or wood, I would say it's not particularly common in our culture, but idolatry certainly is common. The greatest idol in the world today, it's not money, it's not fame, pleasure, or power. It is self. Self is the greatest idol. We live in the day of the selfie where people are very taken with their own likeness. He says, don't fashion anything after any likeness, and yet we can spend a lot of time crafting a a likeness that we are pleased with. There was an article... Written in 2015, there was a survey of 2,000 women. It said that women 16 to 25 are the most prolific selfie takers, a pastime on which they spent 48 minutes on average a day, 5.5 hours a week. And, and they said how many selfies you have to take to really get the right one, and how many sessions you have during a day. And And, of course, this is men and women, but well, I was quite surprised by that. You don't have to be young and female, of course, to have self control your life. You can the equivalent of a molded image maybe that chiseled physique you have or you want from working out at the gym or or just an afternoon beverage in a soft cushy chair. Whenever self is central to your life, it's as silly as setting dumplings in front of some idol and throwing them out at the end of the the day, thinking that you benefit somehow from that. That's the folly of self, and that is we, we all have self. That's something that we need Jesus Christ to deal with. We have to humble ourselves under the hand of the Almighty God and saying, Lord, strip me from worshiping my own likeness or the likeness of anything you have made because only you desire, only you deserve my worship. Back to Isaiah 40, verse 21. The questions keep coming. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted, scarcely shall they be sown, scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth, when he also will blow on them, and they will wither, and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. Of course, there's not one person who was in existence when god created all things no one today could be could claim to be an eyewitness of god uh, making and creating the the universe and there's a hint of humor here he says don't you know haven't you heard didn't you get the message don't you remember way back when when god made everything surely you know right don't you know He says, this is God we're talking about, the one who sits above the circle of the earth. Everyone's as insignificant and small as a grasshopper before him. The princes, the notable people of the world, they're like nothing before him. It says he stretches out the heavens like a curtain. Now, some of you might have a shower curtain at home, and you probably don't have to work up a sweat to move it. It's fairly light, easily moved. And that's how God stretches out the heavens. He's like, look at this. whoop, Stretching out a curtain. Not particularly difficult. Not difficult at all. The God who created the whole universe, he set it up like a tent. He can set it up and he can take it down that easily. I had a friend whose dad was an a, uh, inventor and he was working on this portable shelter You take it out of the bag and you throw it in the air and in two seconds it just, boop, there it is. And it just lands. It's pretty cool. That's how making the universe was for God. Just effortless. Simple. And you think of its complexity. You think of how much is in space. How much space there is in space. We live in a universe with billions of galaxies and each galaxy containing billions or trillions of stars. Psalm 147, 4, and 5 says of God who created them, it says, He counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. The princes and the judges and the mighty men of earth, they are here one day and they are gone the next. But God endures forever. It may have been a while for some of you. I know the youth sometimes with Ian blows bubbles, or not really blows them, but makes them. Remember when you used to blow bubbles as a kid? And you would blow them and you would try, I would try to just make big ones. I wasn't interested in just making little ones. I wanted to make a big one. And you would. You'd, you'd finally make one and you'd be like, ooh, and then it would be gone. Just like, pop, gone. And you just move to the next one. All that's left is a, after a while, is a little bit of soap on the ground that just washes away. That's all that's left. And the great men, the mighty men of this earth, they are like those bubbles that God just blows into existence and a few seconds later, they're gone without a trace. Our life begins In light of eternity, it's over in an instant, but God remains forever. So we shouldn't let those bubbles get on our nerves. They'll, they'll, they're here. But remember, we too, we have a short time on earth. And God, He's the one who endures forever. Isaiah 40, 25. To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? He continues asking questions. Who is like me? To whom shall I be equal? Who will you make me equal with? Now, I don't know one person who makes the claims that God makes and not one who claims to do what God does. And he says, why don't you look up? Look up and see the stars that I've made. I've made them. I've numbered them. Not one is missing. Now, if a star was missing, I would have no clue. I wouldn't notice it. I don't, there's only, I think, 2,500 stars from each hemisphere that you can see by the naked eye at any given time. 2,500. And there's estimated to be one between, and this is a big estimate, which leads me to believe that we don't know, that there's between 100 and 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy, which is our galaxy. 100 to 400 billion. And I know that no one's ever counted them. Because to count even a billion things, you'd need to find a new star every second, 24 hours a day, for 31 years. No one has that kind of time. There's only one galaxy that we can see from the, with the naked eye from Earth, and that's the Andromeda galaxy. Did you know it was not until 1923 1923 that Edwin Hubble discovered the existence of galaxies beyond our own and by before 1923 we thought we were the only galaxy now there's estimated to be almost 100 billion galaxies that is a big jump in less than 100 years think of that billions of galaxies billions of stars god knows the placement and the type of every star. He knows how long it's going to shine for. The the deeper we look into space, the bigger the numbers get. The estimates are just astronomical, literally. Job praised God for creating constellations in Job chapter 9 verses 8 through 10. He says, He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He made the bear Orion and the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south. He does great things past finding out, yes, wonders without number. These constellations can all be seen with the naked eye. In his painful trial, Job asked God many questions. God let Job ask those questions for many chapters. But in chapter 38, God said, Who is this who asks questions without knowledge? I have a few questions for you. Answer me. Answer me this. And he starts to lay out these questions from chapter 38 to 41. And he takes it up a notch in chapter 38, 31. He says, Can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades or loose the belt of Orion? Can you bring out Mazaroth in its season? Or can you guide the great bear with its cubs? Do you know the ordinance of heaven? Can you set their dominion over the earth? So Job, he has knowledge of God. He has knowledge of constellations. Much more knowledge of the heavens than I have. But God had power to do what Job could not do. He could see the constellations. He he could recognize them in the sky. But he's saying, hey, can you keep them there? Can you make them move at the appropriate time? Obviously not. Knowledge is not power. Sorry, sorry, schoolhouse rock. I don't know if that made it over here, but that was the catchphrase, knowledge is power. Well, you can know a lot of things. It doesn't mean you can do anything about it. You can see the stars in the heavens, but you can't control them. God can, and he does. He can hold together the cluster of the Pleiades, known as the seven sisters. He can loosen the three stars that make up Orion's belt. That's a constellation you can see from all over the world. The Great Barretts believed to be Ursa Major or the Big Dipper. So we have in the Bible, in ancient times, constellations that are still in existence today, which is amazing. It's, so when you, we look to the heavens and we see what God has made and we think about things like, like the sun and the moon, for instance, we can consider God's planning and his power. It's no accident that the sun is 400 times larger than the moon, but the moon is 400 times closer to earth than the sun. That's why they appear to be the exact same size from earth. We live in the only place, or one of the only known places, I think it is the only place, but because there's so many options, you think, well, maybe maybe it's possible. But we live in the only place where you can have a true, full solar eclipse. Because of the size of the moon, and the size of the sun, and their orientation to earth. I don't believe that's an accident. I believe God planned that. And he made the sun the size that it is. He made the moon the distance from earth that it is. So that we could look up and say, wow, God, you thought of everything. You do everything awesome. God wants people to do more than just look to the stars. He says, look beyond them. Look at the one who holds them. Look at the one. Consider the one who has made them and names them and has numbered them. The one who keeps it all together. We can feel forgotten and misunderstood. But God knows exactly what you're going through. He has more intimate knowledge of you than you have of you. Jesus told his disciples in Luke 12, 6, and 7, Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins, and not one of them is forgotten before God? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Now, God doesn't promise that our hair wouldn't be missing. But even when it falls, he knows the number of it. By the time you've finished counting your hair, the number will have changed in some way, but God knows. He knows exactly what's going on in your life. To us, our hair can be a very significant thing, but think of God and that you are significant in His sight. We're not worthy of His love, His provision, or His mercy, yet He gives it to us freely. He values us out of his goodness. Nations are like nothing before him, and yet God sent his son to die for us so we could live. Jesus is the good shepherd that will leave the 99 sheep in the paddock to seek after only one that is lost. And he's saying, how can you say that my way is hidden from you? How can you say that God doesn't know exactly what's happening in my life? when God knows all these things and he's demonstrated his love for you. And now now let the words of the prophet boom like thunder. Let it shake your soul. Isaiah 40, 28, he says, Have you not heard? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He says, Have you not known? Have you not heard God speaking to his own people people who were not trusting him people who had reduced him to an idol something made by the hands of pe- the hands of men some something that can't hear can't speak can't act can't move that needs to be propped up god doesn't need to be propped up They imagine God was helpless to change their situation, to hold their life together. So I ask you, child of God, have your problems made God seem feeble? Do you think your plans are better than his? Why do we question the things then? If we say, oh no, his ways are better higher and better than mine, then why do we question him? Why has it been so long since we poured out our hearts in grief for sin? Why haven't we been entirely honest with him? Why do we love the things of this world more than Jesus? Why is it that we justify worry and cares? And we allow this world to crowd out the awesome nature of our God and what he has done who he is he says have you not known have you not heard the everlasting God the Lord the creator of the ends of the earth neither faints nor is weary his understanding is unsearchable it occurred to me that I am preoccupied we are preoccupied with troubles because we do not trust God period are we willing to admit that we don't trust him? Yesterday I was thinking that, and I was convicted because quite often I'll stop short of repentance. I will come to the place of admitting I've done wrong and I'll come to the place of feeling sorry about what I've done. But repentance, as much as it looks to what you've done, it's also looking forward and saying, I refuse to ever do that thing again. It's a change of mind resulting in a changed life. Where you say, Lord, I have not trusted you. I'm not just sorry for that. I repent for my unbelief. And I'm going to chuck those idols, whatever they may be. And I am going to trust you from now on. Full stop. I'm not going to give myself any, any lead. No. I repent. So. It's time, it's time to stop running. It's stop, we need to quit making excuses. We need to respond in obedience to the conviction of the Spirit and return to our first love joyfully as at the first. And trust Him. Because He is worthy to be trusted, to be believed in. God knows how you're suffering. Isaiah 53.4, it says that Jesus carried our griefs and our sorrows in addition to our sin when he died on Calvary. He carried your grief. He carried your sorrow. And if you will give your sins to Jesus, well, give him your grief and your sorrow as well, because he's died for them. So you can be free. So you can be casting your cares upon him because he cares for you. He doesn't make light of your sorrows. The blood of Jesus was poured out for your healing and your restoration so you can have new life, so you can know God. And he lovingly pleads with us. He says, be casting your cares upon me because I care for you. Let's believe him. Let's trust him. Isaiah 20, excuse me, 40, 29. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We become faint, but not God. He does not faint, nor is he weary. says he gives power to the weak, and those who have no might, he increases strength. When my nephew and niece came to visit Australia, we took them to the National Pass at Wentworth Falls. And I decided, hey, they're here one time. We're going to the very bottom of the Slacker Stairs. So we're on the National Pass. We went down to the bottom, hung out for a bit, uh, and then finished the track. And by the end of two and a half hours of this hike, you might imagine that those youths had a lot more energy than me. And, and it, it comes back to me every time I do that walk. Like, I won't always be able to do this. There's a day coming when they're going to have to get a chopper out here to get me out of this place. So so I'm enjoying it while I can. But even though those youths had a bit more spring in their step, there's an end to their strength. There's an end to their endurance. I'm sure they slept very well that night. And as we watch the Olympics, those stronger, strongest power lifters, there's a max They can lift more than you and more than me combined, perhaps, but there's a maximum that they cannot go above. They have a max. But through the prophet, God promises, those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. God does not promise limitless strength. He doesn't promise a feeling of strength that gives me confidence to press on. Indeed, you will feel very weak at times and like you are completely unable to do the first thing that God has said. Yet if you wait on the Lord, he will renew your strength. Remember when Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He he fasted for 40 days. He faced those temptations head on with the word of God. It says, after that time, angels came and ministered unto him. Even Jesus needed to have his physical strength renewed. Consider when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He had gone a distance apart and he had prayed out to God and he said, Lord, help this cup to pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. He's sweating drops of blood. And in Luke 22, 43, it says, as he prayed, then an angel appeared to him from heaven strengthening him he waited on the lord in prayer and god strengthened him to go through with dealing with betrayal and crucifixion and pain and separation from god god keeps his word jesus waited on the lord god renewed his strength and he found that strength through prayer praying to god Unlike those who faint and grow weary, it says, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So the question is, are you weary and faint this morning? Those who wait on the Lord, they can soar like eagles, run without weariness, walk without being faint. So God's provided that promise for us. We can lay that to heart. We can walk in it. To mount up, it means to ascend. And when we're born again, when we are given Christ's righteousness through faith in prayer, we can soar into the heavens. We can enter with boldness into God's throne room of grace to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. In an instant, you can be transported into the presence of the Almighty God. I have a few verses. As we close, Psalm 24, verse 3 through 5, if you'll turn there. Psalm 24, 3 through 5. Talk about mounting up or ascending, running and walking. Psalm 24, verse 3. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. If we have reckoned God to be like an idol, powerless and unable to help us through unbelief, then we, we should not expect that he will hear or answer those prayers of unbelief. But if we will put aside our idols and we will repent and trust in Him, we can ascend because He will cleanse us. He will render us righteousness by His grace and we can soar into the heavens. Those who wait on the Lord, they will be the ones who receive the blessing from the Lord. God has blessings to give. And prayer is also that key factor that keeps our perspective on christ so we can run with endurance and i'll read from hebrews 12 1 and 2 therefore we also since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking unto jesus the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So soaring like eagles, running without growing weary, we can run with endurance once we've laid aside those weights and the sin that easily ensnares us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our race, we follow Christ's steps. And finally, if you could turn to Colossians chapter 2, 6 and 7. Colossians 2, 6 and 7. We receive Christ through faith and that is how we should walk. It says, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Thanking God, abiding in Christ in His love, through obedience. We may have questions for God, but let's consider today these burning questions He has for us. And it's our lives, not our words, which provide the, the true answer to those questions He asks. He says, "Have you not known? Have you not heard?" The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So with him we can have our strength renewed. We can mount up with wings like eagles. We can run and not be weary. We can walk without fainting. Let's praise and thank him. Let's recognize who God is, what he has done. And let's wait on him. Thank you, Father, for giving us your word and for asking us these these hard questions. And they're hard, Lord, because our hearts can be hard. And because we want to see ourselves in a good light. But may we see Jesus as the good one and our great need to fully repent before you, to not hold back, to admit our unbelief, To admit, we have not been soaring like eagles. We have been fainting. We have been weary. We've been weary in doing good. And we don't want to remain there anymore. Thank you, Lord, for taking our sorrows and our griefs for our sins and, and allowing Christ, his blood to wash us clean, to give us a new hope, a new life that we can live rejoicing in you, one of strength, and power, peace that passes understanding. Lord, I pray for all of us today that with one heart and one mind that we would choose to follow you, that we would lay to heart your questions today, and you'd transform us, Lord. We would be changed, and we'd bring honor and glory to your name, for you are glorious in Jesus' name. Amen.